It is wonderful to be back this morning. We've been gone for the last three weeks. And, uh, you know, whenever I'm gone, there's not a Sunday that I don't actually want to be here when we're gone. I just kind of want to jet in and then leave. And, uh, and that doesn't work. So um, it's amazing how much I missed it. And I don't think I realized how much I missed it until I gather and worship with you guys and go, oh, yeah, I've needed that. If you've been around this church for the last couple of years, you know that every summer Beth and I take our kids and we head up to North Carolina for a few weeks and we go up there to a house that my parents own in the mountains on a lake and it's beautiful and it's idyllic and there are all kinds of expensive toys like boats and wave runners and things that we get to use as if we own them but we don't own them and we couldn't, honestly. And the interesting part is that my kids have grown up doing that summer after summer after summer after summer, and I think they think this is what normal people do. And uh, and I keep trying to say, no, 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 this is not what normal people do, but this is what we get to do because of the generosity of God to us through your grandparents. But as I'm driving back, I'm thinking to myself, you know, there's another kind of generosity of God too that enables us to do that. And that is the generosity of God to us through this church, through what He's doing in this church. And what I mean by that specifically is that God, for reasons related to His glory that I cannot give you all of the particulars of, has chosen to place His hand of blessing in this season of time on Rio Vista Community Church and on Bethany Christian School. And as a result, what He's doing is He's building a faith family full of people, staff people, a lot of which are in Haiti right now, But lay people, too, who are so competent, so qualified, so gifted, so talented, so committed, so devoted, so full of integrity, and don't miss the last one, so unified. I say that because that's the gift of the Spirit. Unity is the gift of God's Spirit. It's a gift that He's giving to us. Okay, God is doing that kind of a work, and as a result, I can go away for three weeks and actually go away for three weeks. That is a remarkable and a very unusual thing. And it's God's gift to me. And so it's been wonderful to get away. It's even more wonderful, I think, to come home and to worship with you guys and to dive back into a study that God's hand of blessing, I think, also is clearly on. Since the beginning of this year, we've been studying as a faith family through the book of Acts, and we've been using the book of Acts as a vehicle through which to develop a great big transformational idea, which is that life for the believer in Jesus' mission, and what that means, bottom line, if you're just joining us, is that my life, your life, and our life together as a faith family is not about me, and it's not about you, and it's not about us. It is entirely about Jesus and His mission of by His people, through His surrendered, or by His Spirit, through a surrendered people, taking His gospel mercies, real and practical help for people with real and practical needs, and His gospel message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the entire world, beginning in my home and in your home. And in my office and in your office and in my little neighborhood and in your neighborhood and in my social circle and in your social circle and in our city and in our country and even, yes, then even to the ends of the earth. And if you were with us last week and I missed it, and I was really bummed, by the way, but I think most of you probably were here, you got the rollout on our plan for taking the gospel mercies and message of Jesus to India and... You had the privilege of joining with us in prayer for a team of 55 Rio people who yesterday morning, really, really early left to go to Haiti, and I guess some of which will be leaving later this week. That's startling. That's awesome. That's wonderful. 
That's what God's Spirit is doing. When we started this year, we thought, man, we want to roll out Haiti. We would like to get as many people to go. If we could just get 30 adults to go, that's a win. We had 26 in March. We've got 55, including our students, this summer. We have one trip left this year in November. It's going to be a very popular trip. I would encourage you to pray and consider going on that trip. But it looks like we're going to exceed 100 people going to Haiti this year from Rio. And I think that is evidence of the fact that God is using this idea that life is mission. And that's just one piece of evidence of many that I could give to transform us, to make us different for His glory. And so all that to say that it was great to be gone, but it's better to come back and to resume this study with you guys as we pick up our story in Acts chapter 18, beginning of verse 24, where we find the first of two different stories. And the stories are confusing, and the stories are complex, and the stories are controversial. And you need to know that different camps look differently at what happens in these stories. And I'm going to try to explain to you as clearly as I can where I'm coming from on these two Stories, and I'm going to need you to really give me your best this morning. But bottom line, no matter what camp you're in or how you look at the stories, one thing that you will walk away with for sure is that this mission is a spirit-led mission. In other words, it's one that is conducted by people who are filled by the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to go one step further and say, if the Holy Spirit lives within you, He will show up in your life in supernatural ways, though maybe not exactly the way that we'll see him show up in the life of some of the men in the second story today. We pick up our study in Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 24, where Luke, who is the author of this great book, introduces us to a guy named Apollos. And he says this. He says, now a Jew named Apollos. Apollos is not a Jewish name. Apollos is a Greek name, and that's beginning to tell us something about this guy. What we're going to see is that he is a Greek-cultured, Greek-speaking Jewish man who does not live in Palestine, but as Luke now tells us, is a native of Alexandria, which was a city in Egypt founded by Alexander the Great in 332 B.C. It was a center for Greek philosophical, political, intellectual thought. It was the place that housed one of the single greatest treasures, the Library of Alexandria, a treasure that was lost in the 7th century to us. It's tragic. But that's who he is. That's where he's from. And he came, Luke says, to Ephesus, and he probably came to Ephesus on business. The idea, at least, or the speculation is that he's a traveling businessman, a merchant. And he goes from city to city to city to city. And now Luke describes him personally. He says that he was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. But what Scriptures is he talking about here? Because he's not talking about the New Testament. The New Testament was not written yet. So he's a Greek-speaking, Greek-cultured, highly intelligent, very eloquent man who is well-trained in the Old Testament Scriptures. And he had even been instructed in the way of the Lord from those Scriptures. And the question is, by whom? Who instructed him? I think we get the answer here in a second, for it goes on. And Luke says, in being fervent in the Spirit, by the way, meaning in the Holy Spirit, Apollos did what? He spoke and he taught from the Old Testament Scriptures, is the point, accurately, the things concerning Jesus. And even though, here I think is his answer, he knew only the baptism and probably then also only the teachings of John the Baptist who, believe it or not, is a really significant character in both of these stories that we're going to look at. 
John's huge, and that's what I want you to know about him. John was a really, really great man, and you don't have to take my word for it. Just listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Jesus says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, now that is a broad net. Like who escapes that net? Adam, Eve, anybody else? He's gathering everybody up and he's saying, listen, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And, you know, I kind of think that if I had been there and maybe I was one of the Lord's disciples and I would have wanted to kind of rush over to Jesus like a PR person and say, hey, you know, Lord, I think we need to soften that. I think we need to draft a statement of retraction because these people are steeped in the Old Testament. They're listening to you throw the net from which nobody escapes and saying none of those people have ever lived a life greater than or are greater than John the Baptist. Like, what do you do with Noah? What about Abraham? Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David. Is he greater than David, Lord? Yeah, I guess he is. It's a wonderful thing about Jesus, and it separates him certainly from me. He issues no statements of retraction. He never has to come along and soften or make stronger anything. He doesn't sit around ruminating on what the right answer is and strategizing and working his way through it until he finally gains a level of comfort and says, okay, I think this is... There's no I think. There's just I know. So here's what he knows. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John was a great man. John had a great mission, a great ministry. And what was that exactly? It was to prepare God's people for the coming of God's Messiah. How does he prepare God's people for the coming of God's Messiah? Because it's relevant to us today through a ministry and a baptism of repentance. The soil of the heart made ready for Christ is a humble soil. It is a soil that recognizes its hopelessness, that recognizes its weakness, that recognizes its defects, and that recognizes as well that there is not a thing that any of us can do about any of those things. And that apart from Christ, we're lost. He's preparing people for the ministry of Jesus by calling people to repentance, shattering their pride, dispossessing them of their self-sufficiency, making them and helping them to see that, you know, in comparison with God, and that's the comparison, they are as dust. John had a great mission, but John also had a great following, and I don't think that's something that we really appreciate today because, you know, we read the New Testament and we focus on Jesus and we miss the great following of John. John was huge. Before everybody followed Jesus, everyone followed John. Before the buzz was about Jesus, the buzz was about John. Before everyone wanted to interview Jesus, they wanted to interview John. Before people were saying things like, you know, Jesus has a whole series of messages on that topic, and if you go to Jesus.com, JohnTheBaptist.com was blowing up. It was huge. He was huge. When you review the secular literature from the first few centuries, there are more references to John the Baptist than to Christ. 
He did not have a small ministry. He had a huge ministry. And I want you to think about this with me for a second. If you came out to the Judean wilderness, and that's, by the way, where you had to go to see John. John did not make it easy to find him. There is one way, in my opinion, to see the Judean wilderness, and that is on an air-conditioned bus with a bottle of water in your hand. Seriously, it is dead, it is dry, it is rough, it is not a vacation destination. you got to want to be there if you're going to go there. Thousands flocked to see this man, John, to hear this man preach, to receive this man's baptism, and thousands flocked to him from all over the then-known world. They would come to Jerusalem, these Greek-speaking, Greek-cultured Jews who had been dispersed amongst the nations, guys like, for example, Apollos from Alexandria. He's coming from Egypt. They would come to Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate the Jewish festivals and feasts. And no doubt they heard about this phenom in the desert, John, and they went out to see what the deal is. And they heard his preaching. They received his baptism of repentance. If they came out to see him before, close to the very end of his ministry, when he finally identified Jesus as the Messiah, what was the message? What did they walk away understanding and even believing? I think they walked away having trained their eyes to look for the one that John had taught their hearts from the Old Testament Scriptures would soon be coming and who would live and who would suffer and who would die and who would rise again from the dead, that they might be forgiven and have everlasting life. They would take that message and that system of belief back with them to wherever it is they came from, Alexandria, Ephesus, all over the Mediterranean. But if they didn't come before John identified him, well, they didn't know exactly who he was, did they? They didn't know his name. They didn't know the details of his life and ministry, but they believed in him nonetheless, which makes them exactly like who? Everybody that we read about in the Old Testament who were people of faith. What did they believe? Their hearts were trained by the Scriptures to look for the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they died in faith in Christ before he ever came. Their faith is the same as ours. But they just didn't know as many of the details as we do because we're blessed to live on this side of the New Testament. See, the reality is the Internet did not exist back then. There was no Jesus.com. There was no JohnTheBaptist.com. And these people couldn't go back to Alexandria and then just log in and go, oh, good grief, there's a YouTube video of John baptizing Jesus, and here comes the Holy Spirit like a dove, and of John saying, this is the one that I've been telling all of you people about. They wouldn't know until they encountered someone like a Priscilla or an Aquila, who we'll see in a second. Until they encountered somebody like the Apostle Paul, who we will see as well. And I think, though I cannot prove it, I don't have a YouTube interview with Apollos, that that is what Luke is saying about this guy, that that describes his faith. For again, he says in the second part of verse 25, Apollos spoke and taught from the Old Testament scriptures. That's what he's teaching from in the synagogues to where the Jews in Ephesus would gather accurately the things concerning Jesus. 
Luke's writing to an audience that knows Jesus. He's saying he taught about Jesus. He didn't know the name Jesus yet, but that changes. See, he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, even though he only knew the baptism and likely the teaching as well of John. And then he says that Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue there in Ephesus, but when Priscilla and Aquila, who we know from a previous story, were disciples of Paul and they had all the details heard Apollos teach, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately, meaning, I think, that they bought him lunch and said, hey, man, you are right on about the Christ, about his life, about his death, about his burial, about his third day even, I think, resurrection. And about that is the way of salvation. You're right on. But what you need to know is that he actually did come and that John the Baptist did identify him. And they filled him in on all the details. That's how I see this playing out in this story. And then what does Apollos do? Well, he's a traveling merchant. Now he wants to go to Corinth. They said, oh, you're going to go to Corinth? You know, you could be a real help to the church in Corinth. They wrote him letters of recommendation and sent him off as a traveling preacher. And what a preacher that guy was. What a force for the kingdom. Just as a total aside, do you see how he's integrating life as mission into his business life? What's his real mission? His real mission is Jesus. It's not two separate things. It integrates into absolutely every area of your life. So he goes off, he goes to Corinth, and now Paul is going to come to Ephesus because we read this in Acts 19, beginning in verse 1, it says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, the apostle Paul passed back through the inland country and came again, is the idea, to Ephesus. He's been there before. Now he's returning. And there he found some more disciples. And when Luke uses that word, it refers to disciples of Jesus. But they're disciples of Jesus, I think, who just like Apollos had apparently at least only known the baptism and teachings of John. And so Paul begins to investigate their faith. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And now notice when you received the Holy Spirit. When you believed. Not at some other point. One of the things that I think we Presbyterians uniquely get and probably talk too much about at times is the fact you cannot even believe if you do not have the Holy Spirit. You are dead in your sins and trespasses until God, by His Spirit, makes you alive and He changes your want to. You don't want to bow your knee to God. You might be interested in God. You might find Him curious. He might be helpful to you. You might be really interested in some of the benefits that He has for you, but you're not interested in totally surrendering your life to God, which parenthetically is the way it works. You don't just get Him as Savior. You get Him as Savior and Lord. He's not divisible. He's one. And the same is true for the Spirit. You don't get Him in pieces. He comes and He makes you alive and He gives you the very faith by which you believe. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, which tells you that they did not have John the Baptist's complete message. Because what did John say about Jesus? He said, look, I baptize with water, guys, but this one who's coming, whose sandal I'm not even worthy to untie, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, wind and fire. It's going to be miraculous. And so Paul said to them, well, okay, into what then were you baptized? Tell me the nature of your faith and understanding of the Messiah. Where where did you get your info? 
What's the deal here? Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, okay, I think I know where you guys are at then. And I think that he then gives to them the same speech that Priscilla and Aquila, though a little bit shorter as John or Luke records it here, gave to Apollos. He said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, right? Preparing the soil for the coming of Jesus and telling people to believe. It's a faith message in who? In the one who was to come after him. Now, Paul says, let me tell you who that is. That is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And here's the part that confuses and gives us fits. It says, and when Paul laid his hands on these 12 men, watch what happens. Luke says, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Why? Well, broadly, because if you have the Holy Spirit living in you, His presence within you is going to show up in supernatural ways, though not, I think, exclusively in this way. And I want to tell you why. First of all, because not everyone who believes in Jesus in the book of Acts, and maybe you've noticed this as we've studied through it, starts speaking in tongues and prophesying. It just doesn't work that way. I mean, you know, you think of the lame beggar at the beautiful gate in Acts chapter 3. We studied that story together. He is healed, not just physically, but spiritually. Does he speak in tongues? It's not mentioned. What about the Ethiopian eunuch? He went on his way rejoicing, not prophesying. Acts chapter 8. Paul himself, at least on his conversion, doesn't break forth into spiritual song in the tongues of men or of angels. Aeneas, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, the Philippian jailer's whole household. I think what's happening in the book of Acts is that the Spirit of God is using this demonstrable, obvious, in the first instance of it, you can actually see it, it's tongues of fire, you can actually feel it, it's like a great wind, visible sign of His presence to do something very particular. And that very particular thing is not to teach us that there's some kind of a second blessing out there. And then if we just seek it sincerely enough, we will receive it. And the evidence of that will be that we will then begin to speak in tongues. When do you receive the Spirit? It's when you believe. Four occurrences of tongues in the book of Acts. Four, and they're very carefully drafted. The first time, you'll remember Acts chapter 2, Jesus on the Mount of the Ascension has sent His disciples, the 120, that includes the 12, off into the city. And He said, look, go back to the upper room. I want you to pray for the coming of the Spirit. I've given you the mission, but don't even try it in your own power. When, when the Spirit shows up, you do it. These are Hebrew-speaking, Hebrew-culture Jews from Palestine. And the Spirit comes in response to their prayer. And what does He cause them to do? He causes them to rush out of that little place, out into the streets of the city of Jerusalem. Streets which at that moment in time are providentially filled with Jews, like Apollos, for example, from all over the world who had come, Greek-speaking, Greek-cultured Jews, speaking all of their different languages to the city for one of the three feasts, one of those three times of the year. And the Spirit causes them to speak in tongues, meaning in that instance, in the tongues, the actual language of different people from all over the world, the message then being what? That this gospel of Jesus is not just for Hebrew-speaking 
Hebrew cultured, I live in Palestine, therefore I'm a real Jew, Jewish people. And there was a division between these camps. There were feelings of superiority and of inferiority. At the very least, it's for all Jews. And you say, well, Tom, does that mean that speaking in tongues is only speaking in other languages? My opinion is no. I think that the Bible tends to speak of the tongues of men and of angels, but clearly here, it's other actual languages. But then the question is, all right, but then what about the Samaritans? Because they're partially Jewish. What do you do with them? And the Jews, by the way, all of them collectively, everybody agreed on this, did not like the Samaritans and vice versa. So what happens there? Well, Philip goes off into Samaria, evangelism starts happening, a wave of revival starts occurring, and Peter and John, no doubt in disbelief, go out there to see if this is for real. Peter and John, this always happens in the presence of an apostle for a reason. And sure enough, they show up. These people are legit, and they pray for these people, and they lay hands on these people, even as Paul does in our story today. And the Spirit falls on these people in an undeniable, miraculous, speaking in tongues, prophesying kind of way that Peter and John cannot deny, and since they cannot deny it, what's the message to the entire church through these two credible men? Yeah, it's it's for the Samaritans too. Okay, then what about the Gentiles? Do you see how it's just getting bigger? What about the Gentiles? I mean, they don't have any Jewish blood at all. Well, you know what? It's not about your blood. It's about your faith. Nobody makes that more clear than Paul. But the Spirit in Acts 10 brings Peter to do something he would never do, go into the house of a Roman Gentile centurion, where that Gentile and all of his family and all of his close buddies... All the servants, all, and they're all waiting for him because they had been prepared in a vision for his speech and they're like, tell us the message from God. And what is Peter going to do? He preaches the gospel and what, does, what happens? While he's speaking, the Spirit falls on these people. And what do they do? Well, they start prophesying and speaking in tongues. What's the message? What's the particular purpose of this? It is to undeniably make clear to the church that the gospel is for everyone. And in fact, Peter goes back to Jerusalem. He's all kinds of criticized for having gone into the house of a Gentile, and he explains the story, and the church kind of goes, well, I guess that's it then. It's for the Gentiles too. What about the followers of John? What about these people who heard the message of the Messiah? The one who would live, the one who would suffer, the one who would lay down his life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and rise again from the dead for the forgiveness and eternal life of all who put their faith and trust in him. What about those people all throughout the centuries who lived prior to the coming of Christ but fit that description? And what about these disciples of John who couldn't log on to the internet and figure out, oh my goodness, wow, John identified him and his name is Jesus and here are the particulars and I can print out this YouTube video or whatever, you know. The, I, I think the Spirit answers that here. He's authenticating the faith of all of these different kinds of believers. It's very particular in its usage. The Spirit is miraculously authenticating the faith of these different kinds of people to say these people are in the church and the gospel is for every different kind of person. And you say, well then, you know, since that message has been sent, 
Tom, do you believe that every time somebody speaks in tongues today, or let's even go further than that, some miraculous healing occurs. People pray for someone and they get healed in the church. Do you believe that that's inauthentic? Do you believe that that's, I'll just say it, fraudulent? No, I didn't say that at all. I think that some of what gets passed off to us as miraculous isn't. I will say that. I think that it can be given to fanaticism. I think that it can be given to psychological phenomena and all of those things. But I think that when we come and we dogmatically assert that those things do not happen today, we dogmatically assert something that the Bible does not dogmatically assert. And at least in my opinion, and I'm a little bit on a small island in my particular theological camp in saying this, I don't think it says... And we also find ourselves quarreling with our own missionaries. It's really interesting because we send the missionaries out onto the mission field and they go off to these people, groups of people that have never heard of the Bible and they don't know the God of the Bible, at least as he's revealed in the Bible. They know him through nature. We get that. They don't know about Christ. They don't know who this person is. They're superstitious even maybe in their nature. They respect the miraculous. And our Presbyterian missionaries who are rooted in the same theological ground that I've grown in, which does not predispose you toward the miraculous, but frankly away from it, come back and say, hey man, let me just tell you, we laid hands on this guy and he got healed. And then like the whole village came to faith in Jesus because he was the chief's brother. What do you do with that? We live in a miraculous world. It was miraculously created. It is miraculously sustained by the Lord Jesus who governs over the whole of it. We believe in a miraculous gospel. God of the universe became man through a miraculous birth, lived a miraculously perfect life full of miracles that honestly don't surprise me. It would shock me if he didn't do miracles in light of who he is. He died, in a sense, a miraculous death. One man for the sin of many because his life is of infinite value because he's God and man. And then he rose again from the dead. My goodness, what a miraculous faith and what a miraculous God lives in you through faith by his spirit. All of him, not some of him. And if God, for his own mission and his own purposes, wants to do an occasional miracle, I'm in. I'm good. I have no problem whatsoever with that. But I do not believe that tongues are the exclusive way that God is going to reveal the presence of His Spirit in you and that if you don't speak in tongues, well, then you're not a Christian. I don't see that in the book of Acts. And I don't think that is at all the purpose of tongues in the book of Acts as I've tried to lay it out. But I will say this. I will say that if God's Spirit lives in you, He will show up in your life in truly miraculous ways, in ways that, in my opinion, are more miraculous than if you spoke in tongues. He will produce the fruit of His Spirit, of His nature, and of His character in you. I would ask you, what's more miraculous? Speaking in tongues or that? See, he authenticates your faith when he produces for you a love for Jesus that is more powerful 
than your love of comfort, than your love of status, than your love of money, than your love of health, than your love of your schedule, than your love of your own life, or even of your kids. That's miraculous. It's miraculous when he by his spirit produces in you a peace that says my safety, my security, my future, my identity, my reputation, my everything lies not in the hands of this world, but in the hands of the one who sits enthroned above the circle of this world and upon whose hands my name has been written. That's miraculous. He produces in you, and this is a miracle, the fruit of joy in the midst of chaos, in the midst of circumstances that defy any attempted joy, the fruit of faithfulness that remains faithful to God and calls God by faith, faithful to you, even when nothing in your life suggests that that's the case, circumstantially. He miraculously produces the fruit of a heart that agrees with God's evaluation of the value of His own glory as being the supremely valuable thing, not just in the universe, but in mine and in yours. And the fruit of a holiness that ever increasingly reflects the reality that the holy, hear that word, spirit lives within you. My goodness, holiness matters. The fruit of a faith that receives hurt and pain and... (laughs) disappointment and all kinds of things, as if from the hands of a good God because your faith says that He's good even when it doesn't look like He's good. And that it will be good even if that's on the other side of the grave. And then lastly, the fruit of obedience and specifically of an obedience that causes you by the power of that same Spirit to humble yourself and to lay your life down to take the gospel mercies of Jesus and the gospel message of Jesus to the world, beginning in your little world, and then emanating out to places like Haiti and India. I think that's miraculous too. In fact, I'm far more impressed with those kinds of miracles than just with an outward show of a speaking in tongues. I really am. So... How do you wrap it up? Well, let me ask you this. Do you see any of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life? Not lots of it. I hope you see lots, but I didn't say lots. I said any. And if you don't, why is that? Is it because you really and truly need to humble yourself before the Lord Christ? You need to recognize that the standard is Him. It's not your friends. It's not your parents. It's not our culture. It is a holy God. And by that standard, you are undone and you need a Savior. And He's just waiting for you to come to Him in faith and to give Him your sin and your whole self. If that's what it is, do that today. Is it because you're ignoring Him? Either because you're hurt and upset with Him, or just because you haven't agreed with His value, and you're valuing other things above Him. And so personal worship, uh, I don't do that. Gathering for worship corporately, maybe sometimes. Discovering life and community with other believers. Now that sounds like accountability to me. I'm not... That's a great gift, accountability. Accountability. 
serving Christ with your words and with your deeds and growing in your relationship with him by living for him. Maybe you've come to faith in Jesus and walked away in some sense. And the call for you this morning is to return. Do you see the fruit of the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Because here's the deal. This mission we're on, man, this is a spirit-led mission, and it's for spirit-filled people. And if you have the spirit, you'll see him at work in your life. Let me pray for you guys. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the great gift of your spirit. It is by your spirit that we find spiritual life. It is by your spirit that we see ourselves accurately. It's by your spirit that we are able to behold our Savior. And that love is engendered in our hearts. That faith is given. I pray, God, that you would give us that vision as we sang. I pray, Lord, that we would see Christ in ourselves and confess our sin, no matter where we're at spiritually, and come to him for rescue and for salvation, to offer ourselves to him, not just that he might save us, but that he might lead us, that he might guide us, that he might sustain and empower us, that he might draw near to us as our friend, as our Lord as our God, and as our companion in this life. Lord, teach us to follow you by your Spirit, and let us, each one of us, see the evidence of the work of your Spirit in our lives, in our families, and in this church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.